Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Rich, we're, uh, we're topping 50, maybe even 60 miles an hour. I'm, I'm a little bit protected around this corner uh, of this uh, hotel, but needless to say, it's gusting. It's the, it, make, it makes that eerie sound. It just cuts right through you. You can see down here in the marina, boats are rocking. The water continues to be uh, slowly rising here, and we really expect that to pick up uh, as we go through the next 20 minutes. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. Occasionally, we like to break down one of Lane's stories, talk about how the idea evolved and the process. We have 30 years of work to draw from, and it's like going to the jewelry store and picking out a gem. Today's topic, he's our Giuliani. So we're going to have Lane talk a little bit about this story and how it evolved and then and then read it for you guys. Well, this story was just one of those like, oh, there's a hurricane and send out all the reporters in all different directions. And they, they paired us up each with a photographer and they kind of said, you go north, you go south, you go west. And I got sent to the very, 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 very middle of the state after Hurricane Charlie. Um, this was like maybe a couple days after the storm, I think. You know, we kind of waited till the emergency crews had got the roads cleared, and, and we were like the second wave of reporters that got sent out, right? There were okay. people there who were sort of embedded in place to report about the storm. And then our second wave was like, okay, you guys relieve these guys out in the field and go find another story. And and we didn't really talk about who was doing what. I didn't really know what the other reporters were doing at the time. I just knew we each had our own little, like, region you know, that we so were So you could go cast to. whatever. Right. Okay. So it, well, it wasn't like don't overlap with this. It was like you do this central part of the state. You're doing right the here. place. Find something. Yeah. Okay. All right. So this is, he's our Giuliani. The mayor needs a crane and a shower and a nap. First things first, got to find a crane so we can get those generators off the truck, get them down to power up the old train depot where volunteers are handing out food and diesel. The mayor needs diesel. If the backup pumps at the septic plant run dry, he'll have raw sewage in the street. Ice. Something has to be done about all that ice. Hundreds of pounds of it donated from as far away as Georgia are melting in the back of six tractor trailers. We're likely to be without water and power another week, the mayor tells the town manager. We've got to find some way to turn Jimmy Parker's packing house into a freezer. Red Cross trucks are streaming down the battered streets. National Guardsmen are patrolling outside the little town hall. At the donation center, toilet paper and diapers and canned tuna are piling up. It's Wednesday, day five. Remind me to call my wife, the mayor tells the town clerk. After she saw me last night, she left and took the kids to her sister's. He slumps at the deputy clerk's desk and takes off his glasses. He rubs his hands through his stubbly red hair and closes his eyes. He hasn't slept since Hurricane Charlie trashed his tiny town. His office is littered with bottles of antacid and Tylenol and used paper plates. Two emergency radios are crackling on the desk. All three phone lines are blinking. The federal relief guys keep promising to make an appearance. A state emergency group keeps calling, demanding updates. Someone in Hardy County Emergency Management 
wants him to drive down to Wachula to fill out forms and sit in on briefings and learn proper post-disaster protocol. Randy Mink doesn't have time for protocol. He has a whole town to fix. Bowling Green is a dot on the map between Fort Meade and Wachula, a rural crossroad straddling U.S. 17. It was named for the hometown of the Kentucky farming families who settled here a half century, I'm sorry, who settled here a century ago. In the 1940s, during its heyday, Bowling Green built itself as the strawberry capital of the world. Then a freak frost killed the crops, and the strawberry festival moved up the road to Plant City. These days, folks around here mostly grow tomatoes and cucumbers, or work in the phosphate mines, like the mayor. The town has one small market, a half dozen churches, a girl's prison, a thrift shop, and a post office. No bars, no buses, just one square mile of what are now splintered houses, roofless buildings, and exploded mobile home parks. Every property in town is damaged, says Mink. Lots of folks are bunking with relatives or staying under leaking roofs. Most folks didn't have insurance, like the mayor. Most didn't have much to begin with. About 3,000 people live in Bowling Green year-round, an equal mix of whites, blacks, and Hispanics. A couple months from now, if the snowbirds and the migrant workers come back, the population will double. Where are those people going to stay, Mink keeps worrying. Where will they buy food or send their kids to school? What will the migrants pick? Mink has been putting in 20-hour days trying to work these things out. He found a tree cutter to get the oak out of Laura Coffey's living room. He got the garbage crew to help haul maggot-covered hamburger from Sellers Market. Every evening, he brings a hot meal to Mrs. Bailey, who's 81 and suffering in the heat. He already got her a generator. He plans to go home later and get his room air conditioner for her. He hasn't had a minute to help his own family, his elderly mom, his aunt. He hasn't been home long enough to pull the trees from his pool, patch the broken windows, or take care of his wife and four youngest kids. He keeps thinking, no wonder they left. The mayor needs clean clothes. He ran out yesterday, and the nearest laundry with water is three towns away. His wranglers are caked with dirt. His Florida State t-shirt is streaked with sweat. He's been shaving with a disposable razor, rinsing off in his leaf-filled pool. Tell those guys from Public Works if they want to come over and jump in, they can include that as overtime on their pay cards, the mayor tells the town clerk. They've been sweating on city time. They should get paid to shower on city time. He downs the rest of his cold coffee, answers a two-way radio. I talked to Jimmy Parker, he says into the static. He says if we can rig it, we can refrigerate his packing house. Hey, and get someone over to empty those dumpsters at the park. They're starting to become a health hazard. Mink is 45, loves Andy Griffith and karate and gospel music. He's an environmental technician at IMC Phosphates. He ran for town commission only because his town was in trouble. Five years ago, the governor's office was about to take over Bowling Green's finances. Mink, who's lived here since high school, wanted to help preserve his town's independence, so he ran for the five-member board. After his first term, the other commissioners elected him mayor. Normally that means dropping into town hall a couple times a week, signing checks and chatting with clerks. Once a month, he'd lead the town meeting, which seldom lasted longer than a half hour. But normal is a foreign word now. When his wife left, she was crying. After finding a crane for the generators, checking the sewage plant, and sending an electrician out to Parker's packing house, Mink finally escapes town hall. He stops by his house to let his dog out and pick up the air conditioner for Mrs. Bailey. The mayor's house is a two-story farmhouse, 105 years old, with peeling paint and a rusty Coke machine propped on the wraparound porch. While the hurricane was tearing apart his town, Mink huddled in his living room with his wife and kids. 
They listened to power poles crashing, trees slamming through roofs, metal sheds pummeling walls. His little girl, Julia, kept sobbing. About midnight, when the 120-mile-per-hour winds had died down, Randy told his wife he was going to check on town hall. After all, he's the mayor. That's why they pay him $200 a month. He threaded down Main Street through sideways rain, gaping at his neighbor's crunched houses. The fire station was gone. The elementary school roof was shredded. Trees had crunched three of the six police cars. At Main Street and U.S. 17, the town's only stoplight was dangling on a frayed wire. Mink stood in the back of his pickup in the rain and sawed it down with a chainsaw. For the next four days, he was being pulled in so many directions he didn't have time to think or feel. Finally, late Tuesday night, he sat down on his bed in the dark. He sat there, staring at the wall, his shoulders shaking. You okay? asked his wife, Stephanie. He didn't answer. She leaned forward to see his face. The mayor was choking back tears. He was trying to take care of so many people, his wife said from her sister's home in Ocala. I figured if me and the kids left, he'd have one less thing to worry about. The mayor needs the town manager and food and a cigarette. First things first, got to find the town manager and calm him down. Those FEMA guys made him throw the phone across the room, a town worker tells the mayor when he gets back from hooking up his air conditioner from Ms. Bailey. They kept asking for task numbers and mission statements and all sorts of stuff we didn't know existed. If we waited on the government, we'd be five days behind where we are now, Mink says. We got the generators unloaded, diesel's on the way, and when dixies bring in a truckload of dry ice to keep the packing house cool. He drives around town until he finds the town manager. I'm not worried about FEMA, he says. We've just got to do what we've got to do to get our town back. At feeding time, 6 p.m., the mayor drives over to the train depot. Tammy Atchley's serving hot gumbo from the back of her minivan. Her husband Brad's been home all day, tending the grill. Ever since the storm, the Atchleys have been cooking meals and handing them out around town. Today, Brad made 75 plates of neck bone and rice and at least as many bowls of gumbo. Can I get one of those for Mrs. Bailey and her daughter? The mayor asks. And maybe one for my mom and my aunt? Of course, says Timmy Atchley, handing him five plastic spoons. And take one for yourself. You look like you could use some supper. The mayor doesn't remember whether he ate breakfast or lunch. Thanks, he says, grabbing a gumbo. He sinks onto the curb by her van, pulls back the tinfoil, and digs in. While he's eating, the postmaster comes up to thank him. Thank you for getting us a generator. Thank you for getting us going again. New York had 9-11. We had Charlie, postmaster D. Williams Tattis tells Ashley. She grabs a gumbo from the van and nods at the mayor. He's our Giuliani. Mrs. Bailey is lying on the couch, curled under an afghan, her eyes shut beneath her bifocals. Mink hands the two bowls of gumbo to her daughter. It's still warm, he says. Since you got us that air conditioning, she finally got cooled off enough to get some sleep, Mrs. Bailey's daughter says. She sets the gumbo on the coffee table and hugs the mayor around his neck. Without you, we wouldn't have her right now. On his way back to town hall, he drops in on his mom to give her the gumbo. He's back at town hall at 8.30. The National Guard is still patrolling. I just witnessed one of the beauties of small towns, a police officer tells him. I've been out there all day watching folks clean up. Even the dirt bags are pitching in. For the first time in five days, the mayor laughs. He empties his mailbox, checks his phone messages. He still has to call his wife. He's dialing her sister's house when the office door swings open. Brad actually walks in, flushed and tired. Hey, thanks for the meals, Mink says, getting up to shake his hand. Ashley's charcoal grill's been the main source of hot food in Bowling Green. 
Just wondered how many lunches you think I ought to do tomorrow, says Ashley. Just don't want anyone to go hungry. Mink cocks his head. What are you, fixing to be the new mayor? In due time, Ashley says. The mayor folds into the clerk's chair and takes off his glasses. He rubs his hands through his stubbly red hair and closes his eyes. Suits me, he says sleepily. You can start tomorrow. Okay. You said this is your favorite hurricane story? Yeah, I've probably written, I don't even want to think about it, 30, 40 hurricane stories at least in my 30 years, probably more. Mm-hmm. And but I, I liked this one the best. Why? What was it about it? Um, it was Andy Griffith. You know, and when he said that, when he said he loved Andy Griffith, all of a sudden everything kind of coalesced for me. And I was like, that is what this is about. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's this tiny little town. I mean, the details that I was able to get. Okay, so I'll set this up a minute. We, we came into this story at that scene where he was sawing down the stoplight. Okay. We were going up US 17, like looking for a story, like what can we tell, what can we do? And we see this guy who we did not know was the mayor standing in the back of a pickup in a rainstorm sawing down a stoplight. And I'm like, holy cow, there's something going on here. Like, <laughs> So we stopped to talk to him and he was like everybody else after a hurricane is always like, I don't have time. I got things to do. I don't have, can't sit down and give you an interview. Don't have time. Get out of my way. I got bigger problems. And so I think all we said was, can we just hang out with you for a couple of days? I said, we, we. We won't need to bother you or sit you down for an interview maybe until late at night, you know, when you're done. But we'd just like to follow you as you try to put your You knew right together. away. You knew right away you wanted a key on him? As soon as I heard or he was just, the mayor okay. and he's out there sawing down the one stoplight. And he's basically like listing off all the things he has to do of why he can't talk to us. Right. You know, and I'm writing him down. Okay, a generator. Okay, ice. Okay, writing food. Okay. And, and I'm just sort of like getting caught up in... His mm-hmm. mindset. Yeah, and his world. Yeah. And then when I found out that his wife and kids had left, so he's got this worry on the outside of this town, you know. Plus he was like, he was a reluctant mayor. You know, he's a tiny town. Everybody knows everybody. It wasn't like, you know, he can drive around and find the, the town clerk just by driving around the little square mile of the town, you know. So he was just, he was very um, affable, but also very um broken at that point you know just like so completely tired but he, he could tell he was not going to stop and so I thought oh I've never read a story about that like you couldn't do that at the mayor of St. Pete really I don't think right. you know no, probably but not it, it just felt like the perfect little snapshot and was he so worn down by that point that he just didn't care like he, you come along if you want but I I'm, think I'm exactly. not gonna yeah I'm not gonna whatever just do it right that's exactly what it was like and we hung out with him you know we basically spent that day and the next day and then I got to sit down with him at night in the dark after he called his wife one night and sort of fill in the blanks. So you use a technique at the beginning where you say the mayor and you don't name him until the kicker of that first section. So uh, obviously it was purposeful. But what what are you thinking about when you make that choice? What's the What are you hoping to evoke in people? I think I wanted him to stand in for any mayor of any small town. You know, in the the same kind of moment. Exactly. And it really did harken back to Andy Griffith, you know, the sheriff, you know, and there was the town clerk who I didn't really name. There was Mrs. Bailey who I didn't really name and or it's a wonderful life. You know, that's my favorite movie. And Mrs. Bailey is 
the mom of right. you know in that movie. George. So I, uh, of yeah, George Bailey. And so I I just like that they kind of represented every man mm-hmm. you know who's who is in a small town after a disaster. Did you have to fight to not name Mrs. Bailey her first name? Because I love that you didn't name Mrs. Bailey. I love that Mrs. Bailey was just Mrs. Bailey because I figure everyone in town knows her as Mrs. Bailey. Exactly. And that's what he called her the whole time. I think if she'd been awake and I'd been able to talk to her or quote her, <laughs> I might have wanted to use her name, but she was snoring under the Afghan. So it was like she just became this this figure, you know. Um, and, of course, you had the advantage of just hanging with him and then picking up the dialogue as you went along. Yeah. And seeing the the details of what he was dealing with. And he was so unfiltered you know he was tired he was worried he was just very unfiltered my fa- that might be one of my favorite quotes in any story like even the dirt bags are pitching in <laughs> i just love that and he's just, he has this great laugh and when he guffawed like that i was like when was the last time you laughed and he's like yeah it was before the hurricane so like yeah. i just love that detail um in terms of the backstory so that you've you've zeroed in on this character the mayor um how much do you think readers need to know about him? Because you did. You, you stopped to tell me that he was an Andy Griffith fan, and you stopped to give me a little bit of how he ended up in this job. But, like, how do you, how do you decide, or do you remember how you decided whether, how much of that to put in there? I think there were two moments when I kind of stepped outside the narrative, and one was to give you the, the bio of the town, mm-hmm. right, how the town right. came to be what it was, demographics. And then I waited for a little bit longer even for the mayor, Um I think I just wanted people to have enough to know, like, he wasn't a career politician. He had another job on the side. You know, the detail of the man is making $200 a month to deal right. with all this bull crap, you know, just was striking to me. But he took it so seriously. You know, he's kind of like, I didn't set out to do this. I didn't want to shoulder the burdens of this town, but somebody had to do it, you mm. know. And, dude, I'm mayor. <laughs> you know, the ending there was so such a gift when we were waiting till the end of the day. And I, I went back. I was going to end with him originally. I was going to end with him going home to his dark, hot house and jumping in the pool or calling his wife or something. And I thought, no, that was such a perfect moment when he's like, sure, go ahead and be the mayor. You know, and it sort of starts and ends in that town clerk's office, which I like the, the symmetry of that. I love that. You know, a lot of stories, if you were diving in and doing a story about this town, and you could imagine people saying the stuff about the mayor, like, oh, he was great. Look at how much he did for us. But it really comes to life. You get to see sort of what what all he's having to deal with and the range of shit he's having to deal with. And um, I, yeah, it's really it's very it's very cool for that. Um, you know, a lot of the um, storm coverage we do too. We focus on the recovery from FEMA or from the state emergency management right. people, or we go to the county ops center. And I, I loved how all those those bigger agencies were kind of the enemy in this. It was like, we don't need you, you know? Um, Do you, did you talk to him afterwards? Do you know what his reaction was to this story? I did. And he's still my friend on Facebook, actually. (laughs) (laughs) He's a great guy. He, he, um, yeah, he, he really liked the story. He said, I made him too heroic. And I was like, I was just watching what was happening. And he said, no, I didn't think of myself like that at all. It was a little embarrassing, you know, but his wife really loved the story because she said she didn't think everybody knew um, how much it was weighing on him, mm-hmm. you know, and the personal toll it was taking. Um, so you had that sort of, uh, you know, the the tease for people about no wonder his his family left. I mean, so um, so again, like our, it's as you're plotting out this story, is that a moment where you're thinking to yourself, I'm gonna I'm gonna give that to the reader as a keep reading, as a, you know. I think because it was for me, you know, when he told me his wife and kids had left and how guilty he felt about that, it's sort of 
it, it struck that universal chord of like anybody who's charged with taking care of other people, including us. You know, I always have that in a storm in the newspaper. Right. Like, I got to go out and do my job. Sorry, kids. Bye. Don't, right. don't float away. <laughs> you know? And so. Yeah. Good luck with the hurricane. <laughs> like, have, have fun with We're that. Just... I'm going to the bunker. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it felt like, you know, that she was trying to unburden him, but he was seeing it as a failure. Right. You know, he wasn't able to protect them or provide for them. So how did you weave in? Did you wait till late at night to get him to talk a little bit more? Because he didn't, he was too busy. He didn't want to. So when did you make time for that? How did you get him to stop and talk? Yeah, I think he got back to the office. I think I said around 8.30 p.m. We probably hung out there till 9 or 9.30. And then he was like, I'm going to go home and jump in the pool because you couldn't take a shower. And I was like, can I come? <laughs> and uh, he, he, <laughs> he was ready to like unburden a little bit. You know what I mean? He was ready by then. Like, the so did you go? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And yeah. he jumped in the pool. He, he jumped in the pool and then we kind of sat. And you're sitting there watching him jump in the pool. Yeah. Okay. And it was really hot, you know, and, and there was no air conditioning or no lights. It was flashlights. We were sitting there talking around, you know. Um, but I had to ask questions like, how much do you make a week? And how long are your city council meetings? And all these things that didn't have much to do with the story, you know, with the right. storm. Right. Um, and I said, I didn't want to interrupt him during his day. There were way too many more important things going on in the midst of it all. Do you remember? So this was a one long day of reporting or two days of reporting? I think it was two days of two reporting. Days. Yeah. And then how long did it take you to write this? We slept in the car that night. I remember that. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> he, his house was like the roof Which and the windows. Which photographer were you with? Just for? Chris Zupa. <laughs> okay. Just checking. Um, all right. And then... Um, how long did it take you to write? Were you on a deadline? I think, yeah, I think I wrote it in a day. I yeah. think I wrote it in a day. We drove back like that next evening, and then I wrote it the next day, I believe. And and it was for a Sunday story, I think. Was okay. It. Um, and it was a great little insight into this this experience of kind of rallying from a hurricane. Yeah, did anybody else have something similar or did you guys end up with very different stories? We had very different stories. Um, that that hurricane hit a bunch of trailer parks. So there were a couple stories about just people like in standing in insulation piles, you know, mm -hmm. with no homes and stuff like that. Um, it also wiped out a lot of the citrus crop. Mm -hmm. So there were stories about like loss of and, and I tried to veer away once I figured out there was somebody else doing a citrus story because the packing house right. there was the center of everything and I thought, okay, I don't need to even touch on that because somebody else is doing the Orange Groves mm -hmm. story. Um, but yeah, we didn't know what each other was doing till we came back to the newsroom, which was also kind of interesting. Um, did you, some of these scenes, I like, so you, you obviously have him sort of all the things that are coming at him, but the moment he gets to have a meal, um, why it, it felt natural, I guess. Did it feel natural to you too? This was like a moment to sort of slow everybody down and give you a chance to catch your breath. In the it was midst. the first time he sat down. I love the line day. that like he didn't even remember whether he had breakfast or lunch, which what a, what a crazy experience. Yeah, he sat on the curb and the curb and it was almost like a visible like, or audible like, phew, you know, like I'm finally sitting and putting something in my belly for a minute. But it was very quickly lived because he had to get out and do 10,000 other things, you know. OK, so let's finish up with there is a little epilogue on this story. So where Lane ended was where the story naturally ended. And then um, she she wrote a short epilogue. So let's let's do that. And then we'll finish the episode. Yeah. So this story I probably reported Monday and Tuesday, wrote it Wednesday. And then Friday I heard they were actually finally getting some attention. Um, so I jammed that in before the Sunday paper. Last Friday, a week after the storm, Governor Jeb Bush visited Bowling Green. The mayor shook his hand but didn't have time to listen to his speech. 
On Saturday, hundreds of volunteers bombarded the town, contractors and church groups, plumbers and electricians. They sawed trees, patched roofs, hauled away what was left of people's homes. Mink's wife and kids came home. The town finally got power Saturday night. Mink took a hot shower for the first time in 10 days. We moved the donation center out of the depot over to the Methodist church. We've still got lots of food and water for folks, he said. His hardest job was mediating a dispute between the National Guard and the county jail inmates who'd been sent to Bowling Green to unload ice. The prisoners wanted to smoke during breaks. The National Guard didn't think they should be allowed to, the mayor said. The guard guys got kind of gung-ho. Mink doesn't know when kids in Bowling Green will go back to school or when or if some of the town businesses will reopen. He returned to his real job at the mines Monday, too. But on the way home, he had to be mayor again. Those dumpsters down at the park were still overflowing. The town swimming pool was still full of trees. And someone had to make sure Mrs. Bailey had something for supper. All right. We'll put the, we'll put the whole story on our website uh, so you can catch up with it and read it if you like. Uh, if you have questions for Lane or want to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next podcast. This podcast was produced by Monica Herndon. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.